Welcome to The Reading Room. This is Room 17. On this programme, The Reading Room Book Group will be reviewing the epic international bestseller One Q84 by Haruki Murakami. Murakami does destabilise you and you want to know what happens next, but he does leave the reader destabilised all the time and I think that's part of the power of it. We talk to poet Hannah Jane Walker about what it means to say sorry. Do you know what? I think I might be the only person in the world who has a bag full of 2,000 handwritten apologies. It's such a weird thing to own. We have poetry from Paula Teng, and Mark Kermode gives us his nomination for our list of 101 books to read before you die. Hello, this is Tracy Borman. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren FM. And now it's time for The Reading Room Book Group. Joining us as always is Jill Hart. Good morning, Jill. Morning, Paul. Okay, now, when books one and two of Haruki Murakami's latest masterpiece, 1Q84, was published in Japan, a million copies were sold in one month. Readers were transfixed by the mesmerising story of Aomome... As if, is that how we're pronouncing it? Aomome <laughs> and Tango, the strange parallel universe they inhibit. Then one year later, to the surprise and delight of his readers, Murakami published an unexpected book three, bringing the story to a close. Uh, now, because we have a month between episodes, we only took on books one and two. And I know Johnny, our producer, has read this as well. Now, Johnny and I are both at the same stage, halfway through book two. Jill, the class what you have uh, finished. <laughs> you've, you've gone right to book three, haven't you? I have. I'm a big Murakami fan. Okay. Always have been. And um, no, this just slipped down wonderfully for me. So the last time I spoke to you about this book, you'd got to the end of book two and said yes. that you had no idea what was going on. Any, any, yes. clue, any clue now? I have finished and I do know what was going on. And it did take quite a bit into the final book before all the ends were tied off, but everything is satisfactorily resolved by the time you get to the oh, end. Oh, well, don't go. Well, thank you. Well, thanks very much. <laughs> in a good it. way. In, in a good case, way. I'll not finish reading in it. In a good way. Now, as you heard in my stumbled introduction there, I mean, just the, the pronunciation, I mean, this is something we've been discussing this morning. The, the way you give unpronounceable characters' names, the, the names in your own head, and you were saying about the Stieg Larsson book, weren't you? Yes, we all called him Blom instead of whatever long Swedish name it was. Blom exactly. Fist yeah. or and you, you make these own yes. shortcuts in your head. You now, do. When it, now, when it's come to me uh, just uh, putting out the script for the, for the programme today. Actually, it turns out I don't really know how to pronounce it. So how are we, how are we saying this, Joe? It, and it's, well, it's, it's in very early on in the book, isn't it? It's very early out. on in the book. On page four, in fact, it makes a big issue of how the main character's name is pronounced, which is Aomame. And the fact that it is made such a big issue for me actually slowed me down every time I came to her name in the text to get it right. But that is part of the Murakami style, I think, that the style of writing slows you down so that you do read things very precisely, very precisely written. Mm-hmm. Now, in my head, I've had it as a moment. And as you can right. hear, as you will hear <laughs> in this excerpt we're about to play, just to give you a, a bit of a, an, an insight into that style, you'll hear me now pronouncing the name wrongly. Aomami thought hard, arranging everything in order of priority. She needed hardly any time to reach a conclusion. As if to coincide with this, the final movement of the Yannick was just beginning. She pulled her small Ray-Ban sunglasses partway out of her shoulder bag and took 3,000 yen bills from her wallet. Handing the bills to the driver, she said, I'll get out here. I can't really be late for this appointment. The driver nodded and took the money. Would you like a receipt? No need, and keep the change. Thanks very much, he said. Be careful. It looks windy out there. Don't slip. I'll be careful, Aomami said. And also, the driver said, facing the mirror, please remember, things are not what they seem. Things are not what they seem, Aomami repeated mentally. What do you mean by that? She asked with knitted brows. The driver chose his words carefully. It's just that what you're about to do is something out of the ordinary. Am I right? People do not ordinarily climb down the emergency staircase of the Metropolitan Expressway in the middle of the day, especially women. I suppose you're right, 
Right, and after you do something like that, the everyday look of things might seem to change a little. Things may look different to you than they did before. I've had that experience myself, but don't let appearances fool you. There's always only one reality. Now, we should really talk a little bit about the uh, the plot. So, Jill, what, what's this book about? The themes of the book are basically um, cults uh, within Japanese society and the danger of cults. It's about domestic violence. There's a bit of fairy tale romance in there. But a lot of it, and quite importantly, is about the power of story and the written word. Tengo, one of the main characters, is a writer. He's translating a book and changing words in the same way that um, the translator from Japanese to English is changing words, and it's the power of the written word. It's also got um, an Orwellian link to it. The title IQ84, or as I keep saying that, but it should be 1Q84. Well, that's okay, because mm, on the, you remember the video, works, the video podcast for this. I, I've been yeah. pronouncing it as IQ84, yeah, but it's in 1Q84. Well, this is an or, set in an Orwellian-type dystopia where the, the world is undercut by Murakami's little people as opposed to Orwell's big brother. But it, there are quite a few parallels. One of the main parallels is that Tengo is rewriting somebody's words and changing histories, changing past in the way that our Orwell's character does in 1984. And it's actually set in Tokyo in 1984 here. And then there is the shift into this not quite parallel, but different world, which the characters come to call to differentiate it. Uh, 1Q84. Uh, Murakami himself is is considered uh, to, to, to be a cult or certainly a cult writer. But is it possible to be a cult writer when you're selling so many copies? Well, he's doing he's doing in Japan what Harry Potter did here almost. He's opening bookshops at midnight. He's causing, you know, it is a huge phenomenon and he's hugely popular. But not just in Japan, as J.K. Rowling is, it's worldwide now. Yeah, but I, I just, I just mm. wonder then why, why people consider, consider him or his writing then to be a cult. Is, 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 it, is it so off-kilt? It is very distinctive because of the preciseness of detail, because of that very tight Japanese world, because his main characters are always very much in the Tengo mould. If you look at Tengo, you could, he could easily be almost any of Murakami's main characters slightly displaced slightly isolated academic and and usually with with um, an, an isolated way so he can step out of his ordinary life into other ones so yes he's i i think that's probably the the link there i see okay Jill, now you, you've said you're uh, you're a big fan and uh, we we're talking we, we touched there on style what, what's the murakami style it's always very surreal I think the books always begin quite based in a real real world, which this one does. But one is very much in the real world with the feeling of, is this real? Is this not real? What's happening? There's a lot of fantasy in there, a lot of magic realism. There's almost a dreamlike narrative to part of it. There's usually some um, sort of ethereal teenage girl in it, which we have here. There's usually cats in it, which we have here. But basically the style is very, very precise, very slow, and it's it's a very, very, very detailed world of a Japanese lifestyle, which to me is very other. And that to me is part of the huge fascination. Even the things they eat, I don't understand what they're eating because it's very other to me. And that, But the detail of that I find fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it does touch on especially sort of the uh, the, the loneliness and the alien, alienation, doesn't it, of the Japanese sort of work ethic and the work yes. style. And um, you say it's slow. And actually, I mean, this is, I mean, just carrying this thing around has proved a problem. You have, <laughs> normally we come and discuss the cover and you bring your copy down. I have, well, I've got both books one, two and three there. And I did pick them up this morning and did the manual handling test and decided I wouldn't. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, yeah. it's a it's a one book, you know, yeah. advert for e-readers, really, isn't it? Just carrying the thing around. I couldn't fit it in my bag today to you know to, to sort of bring down to the studio. Um, but I have been lugging it to and from work. Now, as we said earlier, I've not finished. I've not got to the end of book two. But unlike when we read Half of a Yellow Sun, where I just didn't want to finish it and I didn't want to get any further on, um, then this one I am going to carry on reading it. You know, sort of over this. It builds uh, tension very, very well. And as you go on through book two, and particularly in book three, the tension is almost unbearable, the way he builds up the tension. He's very, very good at that. Mm. And what I'm particularly enjoying is the, the short chapters, because in a long book such as this, I think that's I think it's necessary. And the way it's structured, it's there are the two main characters, Aomame and Tengo, and the the chapters switch between one and the other quite consistently. So it's a nice pattern. You you can follow each character very clearly through the story. And it makes, as you say, it may, as you get to the end of one, you go to the other and you're ready to go back. It keeps you on the on the ball, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. That's right. And and that style of, of just slowly, slowly brewing it through. Uh, it does. It does keep you wanting more and keep you. And, and I do like this style in other people's mm. people's work where they have short chapters that flick between the two yes. uh, between the two characters. Now, when you talk about the uh, the precision there and you don't know what they're eating, let's bring in the other the other excerpt now, uh, which is. I mean, I, I personally think that this book could have done without this excerpt we're about to hear. You think differently. Let's let's play it. Tango chopped a lot of ginger to a fine consistency. Then he sliced some celery and mushrooms into nice-sized pieces. The Chinese parsley, too, he chopped up finely. He peeled the shrimp and washed them in the sink. Spreading a paper towel, he laid the shrimp out in neat rows, like troops in formation. When the edamame were finished boiling, he drained them in a colander and left them to cool. Next, he warmed a large frying pan and dribbled in some sesame oil and spread it over the bottom. He slowly fried the chopped ginger over a low flame. Now, if a new author brought that to if a mean. new author brought that to a publisher now, they would they would they would either would throw cut. it out or it would be cut, It'd wouldn't be cut, it? You know, yes. they would they would say no, we're not having that. So you, it, it takes someone of Marakami's status to be able yes. to publish this, surely. But for me, the other side of that, I do find the detail very pleasing, and I think it enhances our belief in the depth of the reality of a fictional character that he's one of the few writers that you actually know everything they do, whether you're talking um, what they eat, bodily functions, how they clean their teeth. Everything is in such detail. And there is one bit later on where they describe a hangover in the most excruciating detail. It really hurts. But it does make those fictional characters a little bit more real to me and with another level of depth the reality of them than, than most authors can do. Now, my well, my question here is actually, can authors do that, and are they being edited too much? I mean, is this actually a publishing problem? Where, I mean, we got. This I think book. it takes a lot of skill to do this. Well, we got we got this book, and we got an un. What, what's the what's the thing on the title on the frontier? It's uncorrected uh, book proof. Now, I thought that because of this, I thought it might even be a little bit unedited. I, I kept double checking and seeing if, actually if this is the finished thing, and it is. It is, yes. Um, in effect, what when the publishers produce the proofs, they are therefore exactly what we've been doing reviewing copies uh, getting the word out about the book what's missing from it is is the niceties maybe things like maps and lists and things like that and also um, you might find a few sort of typos and spelling mistakes and things like that that will be picked up on on a final read through for them but other than that this is the finished product okay but you you think that it takes an author of this sort of skill of this sort of talent to get through that because I'm sure there are you know there will be authors as Dickens can do well, it's this time of year, isn't it, where, oh, where Jill picks up, <laughs> picks up a copy of Dickens. <laughs> now we'll hear from Cathy, our regular email representative. Uh, this book is quite an epic novel. 
as it's two books in one. I found it too repetitive, feel it lacked substance and was overlong. Stop frowning, Jill. It's quite a depressing novel and morally dark, though I understand that Murakami novels are cult-based and meant to be surreal. I found most of the sex scenes and the abuse descriptions unsavoury and unnecessary. The obvious comparison to this book would be 1984 by George Orwell, the little people like Big Brother with a controlling force within the book, but the tone was very different than 1984. I was drawn into the two main characters and the ideal of a parallel world captured my interest, but I always felt I was missing something and needed more clarity. Maybe it's necessary to read the third novel to get that. What do you think to that, Jill? I mean, is that is that fair? I mean, you disagree with most of um, that? No, I, th- I, I think that's fair. I think Murakami sl- does destabilise you. You're fascinated with what's going on. You want to know what happens next, but you're not quite sure. He, he does leave the reader destabilised all the time, and I think that's part of the power of it. Mm. And even right at the end of book three... Although don't give away the no, end. I won't give, give away, away the, the endings. Ending. There is a, again, there's a little twist at the end. So at the end, you're still not quite sure. Okay, what's that's happening. enough. That's enough. That's, but you know, <laughs> that's that's his style. Yeah. Okay, okay, right. But I agree very much there with Cathy, especially about the characters. Uh, I'm, I'm really drawn into the characters. I really like the characters. Want to find out. Want them to do well. Yeah. Um, and that that is quite off kilter with with the rest of the book and the, you know the surreal things, but also something she picks up on there, the uh, the sex scenes and probably the the abuse scenes I, I i found them really unnecessary and don't, don't really drag the story along this is what it's that the same editor detail would say. as cooking you whatever he was yeah. cooking earlier i've forgotten what the dish was now but it's in the same detail isn't it the, yeah. the level of detail to their lives is throughout he doesn't select what we should see of their lives he shows us all of their lives I mean, it is worth pointing out that this, along with uh, uh, Stephen King's latest book, has been put Which forward. Which I'm also enjoying enormously. <laughs> I know, but that, both of these books, both of these books, have been put forward for the uh, the Bad Sex Awards, uh, which oh, well. uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> but someone someone did say on the internet, you know, where are the good sex awards? Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, now then, Johnny, you've been uh, reading this book as well. What's your overview? Um, I, I actually really enjoyed it. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a Japanophile, I suppose, but um, I wasn't sure what to expect. My only real experience of Japanese popular culture and, and literature and that were these kind of anime things, you know, which seem to be full of well-built teenage girls in unfeasibly short skirts saving the world. But I, I did find it really uh, quite addictive. And again, as you said earlier, the, the short chapters perhaps helped with that. I really wanted to get on and, and find out what was going to happen. So yeah, I really, I really have enjoyed it. I started reading it after you, Paul, and I've, I think I've just pulled ahead of you. Haven't I? You have, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, steam, you're steaming ahead. You're steaming ahead now. Um, I, <laughs> the amount of books I read a year, I, actually, are the amount of books we do for this program. But and I, I did actually started reading this one early as well. I started reading this as soon as we got it. So uh, yeah, I am a slow reader, but maybe I savor every drop. Maybe that. No, it's not. Oh. <laughs> I think you read all the words, Paul. Whereas I read the words on the first page and after that I click into full 3D Technicolor and I don't see the words anymore it just goes in like a movie I can't explain the process been like that since I was about five <laughs> <laughs> well we're going to do a special program on Jill analyzing her <laughs> reading brain okay now did the world change for you we're going to recommend this uh, to the reading room listener Jill yes definitely. of course you are Johnny uh, yep yeah, yes from me yeah and it's a yes from me um, although I you know I, I just think and I'm going to round this up now. I've made this point, I know, but I really want to round this home that I think there is probably a problem with publishers that they don't allow more of this to go on. And that has warped my mind into thinking that some of this was unedited. Um, whereas, you know, may, maybe I should have just allowed myself to, to go along with it more. Most novels that you read will have the characters, they never eat, they never visit the bathroom, they never sleep. This, you get a real life 
fictionalized. Exactly. And I'm going to say yes for this and I'm going to push. We're going to start a new campaign. We're going to push for more books like this. There we go. Now we're taking a little break over the festive period. So the next review will be February's program. And it's the If You Prefer a Milder Comedian, Please Ask for One EP by Stuart Lee. Now, Johnny was in charge of getting hold of the books for this one. <laughs> so that's why we've ended up there. That's published by Faber. And at 100 pages, it's going to be quite a contrast to this month's book. I can carry this one around. I can carry this one in my pocket, in my coat. That's nice, isn't it? That's very nice. Hi, I'm Richard Herring. Hello, this is Georgia Twynham. Hi, this is Mark Kermo. This is Tony Hawkes. This is Karen Maitland. This is Brandon Cleary. And you're listening to The Reading Room. The Reading Room. The Reading Room. On Siren 107.3 FM. The Reading Room's 101 books to read before you die. I'm Mark Kermode. The book that I'd recommend you read before you die is The Great Gatsby. To me, it's the best written novel ever. I mean, it doesn't matter how many times you read it. It's astonishing every time. It invents new words. I mean, the word orgastic. Every time you come across it, the spell checker tries to turn it into orgiastic, but it's not. It's the orgastic future which recedes year by year before us. And I mean, there were times when I could have recited just page after page of The Great Gatsby. I mean, in fact, my first book, It's Only a Movie, starts with me quoting The Great Gatsby and then trundles elephant like through a series of stolen motifs but you know what can you say it's the, it's the greatest novel ever written poet hannah jane walker brought her latest show to lincoln's drill hall recently the show's title is this is just to say and is described as an interactive intimate experience about saying sorry i spoke to hannah on the set just before one of her shows and asked what the audience could expect it's a show for 15 people which is set around a table um and it's it's kind of a conversation with poems in it like, it isn't like a normal show, as in, I don't stand on a stage. I literally sit down with them at the table and have a chat with them, kind of about the fact that I'm a serial apologist and um, how I think it's kind of epidemic in our society, particularly in kind of British culture, to apologise a lot. And kind of kind of trace how we use apology kind of through our society, asking for them to relate it to their own lives and how they use it at various points. And if they don't want to talk, they don't have to. Like, there's various points where, as you can see on the table in front of you, there's some playing cards. Yeah. There's a bit where I give them a playing card and ask them to think of an apology that matches the number that's on their card and things like that. So there's bits of like formalised interaction and the rest's just whatever they want to say. I mean, there's a story that runs through the show, but there's also kind of quite big gaps in it where, if they want to, they can talk about themselves and their own lives. Yeah, so calling it a show is quite a, perhaps even a convenience thing, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. It's not actually a show, is it? It's, it's a, but I suppose if you put that word interactive out there, people uh, are terrified. Yeah, you have to, you know, quite a lot of the show is making sure that they feel sort of supported and reassured. Because, and I, I, I hate going to see things where you are asked to interact actually because it's terrifying like you think that in some way that the information that you're handing over you're going to be embarrassed or humiliated in some way but that's not the point of it the point is i genuinely want to have a conversation with them about this so how do you use this space we're here and we've got a table in front of us uh, yeah. there are pretty lights around the place uh, lots and lots of bits of paper you like you say you've got <laughs> playing cards so yeah. how, how does this environment do you think en- en- enable people to just start divulging their apologies Done it in lots of different types of spaces, done it in some attics, on a houseboat, in a cellar, in an old shop, and obviously this is kind of quite a conventional theatre space, but I think the main, the important thing is, is whatever space that it's in needs to be made to feel quite um, relaxed, not very formal, and quite intimate, so... What I've tried to do with this space um, is I've just put, like, um, the, I've got about 2,000 handwritten apologies, which previous audiences have, have written. They're very varied in the types of things that they... Yeah, so uh, could you give us some so, examples? Not wanting to pinpoint um, anything, we need to be careful, obviously. But. Yeah, um, 
I'm not sure many of them are radio suitable. Yeah, we do have to bear in mind the audience. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and also there's a funny sort of trust thing of, um, of, you know, if people have handed over stuff. Do you know what I mean? It's an interesting I'm, kind of moral dilemma. It about, is, like, it is. Mind you, are you, you are going to turn them into a book or there are things going into a book. Considering it, so. considering it, very loosely considering it. But what we decided we're going to do with that is get people to rewrite them in someone else's handwriting. Yeah. Because I think handwriting is very personal. And if you saw your handwriting in a book, you'd be like, that's... That's mine. Okay, well, in which case, I'm going to I'm going to withdraw that, <laughs> that question. Sorry, there. but that that whole the, the the British thing of being uh, apologetic, perhaps where you would bump into someone in the street and say sorry when it's not your fault, that that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, I mean, do you come across that, or I'm assuming you get much deeper? We kind of start with that um, because I think that's most commonly where it's seen, and like a lot of people, particularly British people who've kind of interacted with the show, kind of talk about how they will quite often um, end up in kind of passive aggressive situations with people in shopping centres whereby the person's bumped into them and is being rude to them but they say sorry um, and so we kind of explore that and like what if, if if that's just us being like an overly polite nation who actually sees it's like silently seething away and actually being really <laughs> cross um, and then we kind of go into kind of deeper things about relationships and how different countries use uh, apology to apologise to each other, kind of political manoeuvres of kind of the power struggles of, of, of nations and then public figures and how they use it to manipulate and sort of stage manage what we think about them in the public public eye and then I kind of um, make an official well no it's actually a very personal apology which I want to make and um, talk about sort of what the ingredients are that make a kind of a proper apology yeah, so, I mean, and obviously knowing I've been coming here, I've been thinking about apologies. And what, what it says to me is that sorry is quite an easy thing. It's quite an easy thing to diffuse a situation, mm. but it's very hard to mean. Yeah, absolutely. I think we teach kids that. That's something that we cover, is that um, we teach kids. It's a very good way. It's a kind of glib way of just saying, like, I know I've done this thing wrong. I don't want to be punished for it. Kind of, It's kind of a get-out-of-jail-free scenario. But, yeah, a sincere apology should always come at the end of a process which somebody's gone through where they've thought about what they've done and gone, actually, do you know what? I am actually sorry for what I've done. Mm. I mean, picking on what you said about the nationality thing, uh, I mean, are you gonna, you're going to Australia soon, aren't you? I just got back from Australia. Oh, right, OK. Um, got so back in September, end of September. It was fantastic. So how does that go? Because you were talking about the very British yeah. thing about apology. So what, what's the international? Because my uh, stereotypical opinion, perhaps, of, uh, of the Aussies, that they perhaps wouldn't be so easy to come across with the sorries as... Um, well, they've got a national sorry day. Really? In Australia, yeah, where the entire country apologises to the indigenous population for everything that has happened throughout history. And it's a very political day and it's a very political manoeuvre to have an apology day. So it's very much in their consciousness. But yes, I think you're right. I don't think they apologise as much in the street. I mean, in an earlier version of the show, I had a whole section about different countries. And apparently Canadians are very apologetic. Apparently Spanish are not very apologetic. The French, definitely not very apologetic. <laughs> and what you say there, earlier version of the show, so this is something that's got life and it, and, and it grows. It's an evolving thing, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Every show is very different. Like yesterday, I had two of the most kind of unique audience groups I think I've ever had. The first one, I couldn't stop them talking. It was extraordinary. And actually... They were talking in such an intelligent and brilliant way that I thought it was better for me to facilitate that conversation because they were covering a lot of what I'd have covered in the show material anyway. Um, and then the second group, it was a group of people who'd come as a birthday celebration and I'd never done it with a group of people who all knew each other before. Um, so that was an interesting, yeah. different dynamic. Yeah, I mean, getting that self-disclosure must be quite tricky in that scenario. Yeah, that's what I was really aware of in the second <laughs> show last night, that they all knew each other. And there are moments where I ask people to write things down that 
that they've done or would like apologies for. And um, yeah, I was very aware that they were possibly sitting next to their partner or their best mate. Some interesting things have happened during the show, like uh, when I was doing in Edinburgh last year, a couple broke up over the table. That was interesting. Wow. Um, I'm not saying that's something I'm proud of. I don't particularly want to have made a show which makes people break up. No, it's an extremely uh, interesting <laughs> process, though, isn't it? Because I remember uh, going to a pub one time for a, just for a drink, mm. and there were a couple next to us breaking up, and uh, we stayed there for a meal in the end, just because it was such a, an intriguing you I know. Know, process. It's kind of weirdly voyeuristic, isn't it? You're yeah. kind of like, oh, this is awful, but I can't quite stop listening. I generally find that during the show people are fascinated by other people's lives and they want to know because people want to know about themselves and hearing about other people tells you about yourself. And what are you saying there about the, the voyeuristic thing? I mean, you must be the ultimate voyeur. They're there because you're here yeah. every night hearing, you know. The, yeah, the, you yeah, know. yeah, I suppose so. I th- do you know what? I think I might be the only person in the world... In fact, I hope I'm the only person in the world who has a bag full of 2,000 handwritten apologies. It's such a weird thing to own. Um, and such a responsibility as well, I would think. I mean, is there any time when you're affected by this emotion? Is there, is there things that... Yeah, every time, actually. There's some things which people have shared which have been very personal and, and you have to kind of show respect to to them choosing to do that. But uh, I look on your uh, your website and doing a bit of research before we met, and there's, uh, there's a bit there that says that this, this show is developed and funded uh, by the Arts Council England. Yes. And what just jumped off the page at me when I saw that it was helped and funded by an Arts Council uh, initiation is that there, there are ways now that you can get an idea from a page mm. and to hear now where we are, um, and it's, it's achievable. It's mm. actually achievable. Yeah, it is. And I'm really surprised. I don't think my family even really believe me sometimes when they're like, you do what? I'm like, I'm a poet. And they're like, that's not a thing. It is a thing, I promise. Um, but yeah, it is, it's weirdly possible. Okay. Now, I mean, that's the first time in this conversation that we've touched on poetry. I mean, you are a poet. I am a poet. Yeah, <laughs> I am. I know. So we, we, we were talking to John Hegley recently and we were talking about... I love John Hegley. He came to Norwich the other week. He's, he's fantastic, isn't he? And yeah. I caught him just after the show and he was very reflective. Yeah. extremely reflective mood at that point which I imagine you would be after these after these shows yes but John was uh, I, I was saying to him you know well actually you're managing to get out to art centres in places and this is in Louth which is mm. even deepest darkest Lincolnshire uh, and he, he made this comment about just plodding around and things like that <laughs> and he seemed a bit weary of it but actually it's an achievement and he was creating his own gigs yeah. and getting there and yeah. um, being able to make a, a living out of it yeah. which you know you're, you're proving also that you can do but yeah it is possible to make a living out of and um, I think you have to be willing to adapt a lot to not staying with your material in the same place and evolving because you don't just write by yourself you write sometimes uh, mm. with partners don't you yeah, uh, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a there's a show that we can't mention the name of but it just yeah. you can, um, <laughs> we found that we're allowed to get around that one on the radio by saying the O rude word show okay that's um, fine so, so there's the old imagination so there's, so there's the old rude word show that show is about the moment that you realize you've made a mistake that's so big that's so beyond apology that there's absolutely no way back from it um, and how we as human beings deal with those and how they're kind of those types of stories that you sit in the pub and you hear stories about somebody going to meet their girlfriend's parents for the first time and these ridiculous things that have happened and things like that um, and how it's kind of an evolutionary response that we haven't quite grown out of to feel this like extreme panic and terror and how our office culture kind of stigmatises that human error margin so we're kind of slightly out of whack with our biology and the culture that we've created so it's kind of it's a, the show investigates that and I work with a guy called Chris Thorpe on that and um, he is a theatre maker and I am a poet as you quite rightly pointed out um, and um, what's so good about that is that 
um, for all of the writing of all of the stories and all of the poems, we wrote them exactly together. So it was a case of someone writing a couple of words and the next person being like, no, I'll pick that word, it doesn't quite work, which is quite a long process. Yeah, you, get an, you must get in arguments over that. No. Really? No, it's, I think we're very lucky. I think we found a good working combination. I think sometimes we get a stalemate situation whereby I'm going, no, I think this should definitely stay like this. And then we usually find a compromise. But the nice thing about it is that sometimes in collaboration compromise can mean a dilution of both ideas and in this particular working partnership it just means that it somehow means that we're working together to put together the best of each other's ideas which is liberating and brilliant and really fun like it's a really yeah really fun way to work okay and next you're working on uh, things to do with with houses and then yeah. living spaces and moving aren't you i am i'm just starting to write this at the moment and it's about why we need a home what homes are for i think that um homes have been nicified by kind of programs like Kirsty Elsop's um homemade homemade britain is that what it's called a homemade homemade home or and kind of property market programs where like grand designs and things like we're quite fascinated i think by homes and living spaces um, but they've been made kind of quite twee and nice and actually there's a very basic and quite brutal human need at the bottom of it which is to do with a need to belong somewhere to understand your environment to um to know that you can go to sleep and be safe it's a very basic human need that we've made our economy out of essentially and i think that that's um it's quite a strange juxtaposition this sort of very soft fluffy thing that actually is where all the money is so yeah that's what the show's investigating i don't know how it's going to work yet yeah but i mean you're calling out for ideas on this subject, yeah, aren't you yeah, so yeah. if someone wants to get in contact where would they get in contact um, um i'm contactable on my website which is just um www.hannahjanewalker.co.uk and um, you can contact me on there but yeah any ideas or sort of um opinions that anyone has about that would be really interesting to hear about so that's hannahjanewalker.co.uk and of course you can link from our website readingroom.podbean.com and if Hannah is coming to your town I would recommend you go along. The feedback on Twitter following her shows in Lincoln suggested that the show was something very special indeed and I'm sure the Reading Room will be talking to Hannah again in the future. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Earlier on this year, the Reading Room took to the stage for the Reading Room Live, part of the Lincoln Book Festival 2011. And one of the stars of that show was Paul Etang. And here's another poem from him. This is a man's life. With a body that looks like roasted chicken skin, he makes his way into the vortex. He spent 40 years hoping and 40 years waiting, 10 years dying and some years trying, Someone else's mystery has become his obsession. He prays to the altar, but still he makes no decision. He's frightened of being captured, but surrenders anyway. He's scared of enrapture. Heal. Stay. Thanks for listening. Our next programme will be along in two weeks' time, when we'll be talking to the author Nikki Valentine, and we'll have a short story from Richard Barter. We'll also be looking ahead to next year with our pick of 2012's new book releases. In the meantime, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and you'll find the links from our website, readingroom.podbean.com.